Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 9, Dust and Divine Breath. And in this episode, we're going to take a close look at Genesis 2-7, which describes the creation of man. And we're going to focus specifically on what becoming a living creature actually means. The word itself is the Hebrew word nephesh. And we're going to look at many of the places throughout the Old Testament where this exact term is used. And if you're anything like me, what we discover along the way may surprise you. And it'll surprise you in good ways, but it will challenge you in the way that you may be tempted to think about man, think about yourself, think about what it is that Jesus has come to do in seeking to restore man back to who he was originally created to be. So I'm excited for this episode, and let's get right into it. As always, if you would like to follow along in a Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 2. Otherwise, if you're unable to follow along in your Bible, just listen in. I will definitely read every verse that you need to know in order to follow along with me. So in Genesis 2 verse 7, It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, particularly in the last one, about the introduction of the Lord into the narrative and recognizing that the personal nature of the Lord and the intimate covenant-keeping personal nature of of the Lord is one that actually shows him bending down and getting his hands dirty. And that's actually exactly what we see. Um, this image that is being crafted here in Genesis 2-7 is a powerful one, and that it actually shows the Lord forming the man of dust from the ground. So really coming down into his own creation into the dust itself and forming something out of that dust, out of that ground, and then breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, when you read the verse, you you might just skip right over this, but this actually jumped out to me as I was reading it. But it says that the Lord God formed the man. And we had in a previous episode of the podcast in episode three actually we had the unformed and uninhabited parts of the creation and here we have God once again forming something and he's forming man he's becoming very personal and very intimate with man and in Psalm 139 verse 16 it it says this your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, the Psalms, as is typical, but are incredibly powerful statements of intimacy and the the personal nature, expressions of fear, expressions of hope, expressions of love, expressions of praise. And here, the, the psalmist is just resting incredibly comfortably in the fact that when we were in an unformed state, In your book were written the days that were formed for each of us. And here, all the way back in Genesis 2, we actually get a glimpse of what this looked like when the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. Now, I've chosen to title this particular episode, Dust and Divine Breath, because that's actually, in its entirety, what mankind is. And I pointed out last week with the hinge verse of Genesis 2-4, how we have in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and then in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you have this heavenward direction coming to the earth, and you have this earthward direction going toward heaven. And it's very much the same with man. It's very much the same with the fact that being created from the dust of the ground, this actually keeps us firmly rooted on the ground. Um, Mankind is inseparably connected to the earth. He comes from the earth. He comes from the very things that, that, that God chose to create in chapter 1 of Genesis. But mankind is part of the creation. And yet, he receives the breath into his nostrils from the Lord himself and becomes, at that point, a living creature. And so man is also intimately connected, not just to the earth, but he's also intimately connected to God. He's connected to heaven. And as we saw in chapter 1 of Genesis, he is made like God. So man is both a creature connected to the ground who receives his life from the Lord God. And and I did not mention this in the unformed and uninhabited podcast, but I, I would be I would be saddened if I didn't go back and make make a clear reference to this, that in verse 2 of Genesis 1, when we're told that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the very next verse records in Genesis as saying, and God said, let there be light. And the idea between verses 2 and 3 is that with the Spirit of God, the breath of God, if you will, which is um, the Hebrew word ruach, it basically can be translated spirit or breath. And, and again, a favorite podcast of mine is a podcast called The Bible Project. And in that podcast, um, one of their speakers uses the illustration of if you were to place your hand in front of your mouth and just say your name, um, what you will actually hear is the words coming out of your mouth, but what you will actually feel on your hand is warm air. Well, the warm air that you are feeling on your hand, when you speak your name, that warm air is your spirit. It's your breath. It's the same with God. So the spirit of God, as we, as I said in that episode was that the presence for life to flourish was already in place, hovering over the darkness, hovering over the chaos. But that breath goes forward, and sometimes it communicates the power coming from God, the very life of God, sometimes comes in the form of words. But sometimes, as in Genesis 2-7, it's not coming in the form of words. God isn't speaking to the dust that he just formed. Instead, he is breathing into it the breath of life. 
And so man is a creature. He's part of the creation. He is intimately and personally formed by the Lord God himself. And then with that unanimated, if you will, lifeless form, the Lord God breathes with his spirit into this man. And the man at this point becomes a living creature. Now, as I said in the introduction to this podcast, what you'd make of the words living creature is actually a large part of the discussion that I want to have on this episode. Because the living creature word, as the ESV translates it, is this Hebrew word nefesh. And before we jump into what that word actually means, I would like to introduce a few other translations for this idea of living creature. I looked up in the NIV, and the translation there is the same. It translates this word living creature. I looked this up in the King James Version, and the word that is translated there is the word soul. And then I also checked a couple of other translations when I came to the New American Standard. The New American Standard translates the phrase living being, but then it gives a footnote, and at the bottom of the page on the footnote it says literally soul. And I, I do laugh when I see those kinds of footnotes because you're saying, okay, literally soul, but to some people, and mostly me for the majority of my life, when I hear the word soul, I actually hear something that is a little bit different than living creature. And so again, with translations, and this is a hard thing to swallow, but it's something that needs to be discussed, with any translation – Language is fluid. Language is moldable. It's shapeable. Language has inherent in its meanings interpretation. And so any time a Bible translation is attempting to take text that was originally written in Hebrew and translate it into English, there is never a one-to-one -one correlation. Even as much as we wish for most literal translations versus those that are a little more relaxed in their ability to translate. Please choose wisely in the translation that you select, but understand that again, with every translation, we're taking a word that means a certain thing in a certain context, in a certain culture, and we're trying to say, how do I say the same thing in a very different language? And that's actually what's going on here. And yet when I think of the King James Version or even the New American Standard where they're both pointing me back to this idea of soul, I think it is helpful to know that the word soul is one of the ways that English translators choose to translate this Hebrew word nefesh, which again in the ESV is says, and the man became a living creature. So in Hebrew, this is simply saying, and the man became a nefesh and you think okay well then what does that word mean 
And again, some of the most helpful ways of defining what the word means is by simply listing many of the various ways in the various different contexts that our English translators have chosen from our English language when coming upon that word in the the Hebrew Bible in order to best communicate to us what is being what is trying to be said. And so I have a list of some of these words and I want to share with you a few passages from the Old Testament to show you the diversity, to show you the range. And so that when you think about what it means to be a living creature, we're grasping the whole picture. And I'm going to do this for a couple of reasons, but let let me first share with you what I think the word means and then share with you why I think this is so important for you and I to talk about. The word nephesh can in fact be translated soul, just like the King James, just like the New American Standard want to remind you of by giving us that footnote that tells us literally this is soul. It can also mean the self, life, creature, person, appetite, mind, living being, desire, strength, emotion, passion. Now, that's a lengthy list, but let me see if I can capture it for you this way. Nefesh is the man himself. He's a self, a person, or an individual. This, in, this includes even the activity of his mind, the activity of his will, the activity of his character. Your soul, if you will, your nefesh, is you. It's you. Now, I don't know how that comes across to you, if that's new to you, if that's simple to you, but I am taking us somewhere by explaining this, and you will understand why in a moment. But I need to introduce here what I think is a continual challenge that we as Christians in the 21st century are tempted, not always, but in my experience, there have been many temptations toward not realizing that because we are products of Western civilization, we have some type of thinking back from the Greek philosophers, back from the Greek thinkers 2,000 plus years ago, that the idea of the soul is the immaterial part of you, but the idea of your body or your physical makeup or your strength or your energy and those kinds of things is part of the material part of you. And I think it's subtle and there are places even in the New Testament which seem to indicate this. Paul talks about an outer man and he talks about an inner man being renewed day by day. But before we get there, we have to understand that in the way the Hebrew Old Testament speaks of the nephesh, speaks of the soul, speaks of the person, it is not making these subtle distinctions that we so commonly make in our own minds. So that the, the type of thinking that sees you as an immaterial part of you and then the, the material part of you, and it, it wants to create these divides, or, or it might even go so far as to say, well, sure, this is my body, but the real me is something internal and visible that will last forever. This is not the way the Old Testament speaks about the human person. 
So this actually is brought in from Greek philosophy. It's not a Hebrew way of understanding the word. In fact, the way, the best way to understand this word in Hebrew is to recognize that it isn't that man has a soul, but that man is a soul. This is a much better way of getting at the reality. So, and, and, and you, you can hear that when you look at the definitions. Do I have something or am I this? Man became a living creature. Man does not at some point have this living creature part of him. No, man becomes this. And why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because for man to be a living being, a person, a creature, this gets at the heart of exactly not only who man is, but ultimately what man is going to be redeemed and restored back to, but also what the Lord God will expect from man when it comes time to obey him or when Jesus calls people to follow him or when Jesus calls people to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, we cannot and we must not relegate that simply to some privatized, internal, spiritual, immaterial part of us, if you will, me, and think that we are okay. And I would like to submit that many, many, many of the headbutting situations that the prophets encounter, that the Lord God himself encounters with his people when he's giving them the law and they refuse to obey, and specifically the types of things that Jesus encounters with people when he butts heads with religious leaders centers almost entirely on this point is that people have believed themselves able to have this closeness with God but not be able to express it in true love for neighbor. In other words, they've separated themselves into parts. And they've said, hey, in my own heart, I'm loving God, but God will challenge that if you do not also reach out and physically make contact with other human beings as an expression of this inward, if you will, devotion to God. It's a very, very holistic thing, and it has always been this way. And so what I would like to do is just walk through a handful. Uh, there are over 680 references to Nefesh in the Old Testament. In order to keep this podcast around 30 minutes, we're only going to look at 10. But I think they're going to help you as you try to wrestle with this, this concept itself as well and come to understand who it is that you are as a person made in the image of God. It may surprise you to know that nephesh isn't even used for the first time in Genesis 2-7, but in fact we skipped right over it when we read Genesis 1. And so let me read for you the first reference to nephesh in the Bible and make a comparison between it and what we read in chapter 2. So in Genesis 1, 20-21 it says this, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves 
with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now I'm not sure about you, but there is nothing much more humbling than to be described in the same exact language as the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the great sea creatures. But this word, sea creatures, the swarms of nephesh, and so God created the great sea nephesh and every living nephesh that moves. This is the same term. Mankind is a creature. He is more than just an animal, but he is in fact a creature on the earth. He is formed from the dust of the ground. And he shares the same ability that these creatures have to live is ultimately what it is in man that also enables him to live. Without oxygen, man will die just the same as a bird or as an animal. Um, If he is cut and he bleeds, he will die in the same way that an animal will die. So there is an earthy part of mankind that's important to recognize. We are made from the dust of the ground. So let's skip ahead a little bit into Genesis 37. If you know the story, Joseph has made his brothers jealous by his dreams and they decide to sell him. Well, first they want to kill him, um, but then Reuben steps in and and um, tries to prevent that from happening. And they, the rest of the brothers eventually agree to sell him into slavery. But in verse 21 of Genesis 37, it says this, When Reuben heard of their plan... He rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Now, if you read the story at that exact moment, you know that what life means, let us not take his nephesh, what his life means is quite literally his life. They want to kill him. Reuben comes in and says, No, please don't. Instead, they throw him into a pit and sell him to some Midianite travelers. But there's our word again, this time chosen to be Uh, translated as life. In Exodus chapter 1, when it is listing all of the descendants, it says in verse 5, all of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And this is simple enough. I mean, you wouldn't really say in this context, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 creatures, you know, because we know we're talking about human beings. But when it says persons, it's actually referencing these people, all of them, their whole selves. In Numbers chapter 11, Israel has been redeemed from Egypt. They are part of of a continual string of complaints. And in verses 4 through 6, this is what it says. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the word translated strength in the ESV is our word nephesh. And wouldn't you know it, we are dealing with longings, cravings for food... And they feel like they have no strength left. This is a very, very physical thing. This is a very physical appetite, which is actually the passage we're going to look at next. It's from Job chapter 6. Job says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? 
My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. So here, the translation is appetite. My nephesh refuses to touch them. My appetite. But now our strength is dried up. But now our nephesh is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at, and we loathe it. Or a few chapters later in Job chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Now, this sounds familiar enough. We think, okay, Job clearly is wrestling with emotional things. He's wrestling with relational struggle. He clearly has physical wounds on his body that is causing him tremendous physical pain. But it is all wrapped up as the same thing. He can speak of bitterness of his soul, but we then can't read this and say, ah, sure, Job had some wounds on his skin, but his real trouble, his real struggle was something spiritual or emotional or internal. Well, no, actually, it's very much a holistic approach, and that's a, it's a troublesome thing to decide which type of pain is actually worse or which one is more important. Psalm 31 verse 13 says, For I heard the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now many people listening to this podcast, if you're like me, do this with the Psalms. We read something like that, something from David where he genuinely is fleeing for his life. His enemies really do want to take away his life. And because many of us have never experienced anything remotely close to that, what we think is, well, what David really means, how this really applies to me, are those social situations where I feel like I have people talking badly about me behind my back. Emotionally and internally, it hurts me. So the take away my life, the plotting to take away my life is really something personal and internal. And again, if I'm the only one that's ever done that, fine, I'll stand alone. But I'm, I'm tempted to think that that is, is how it is sometimes thought by others as well. Psalm 34, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Now, this one's fun to me because my soul, my nephesh, will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it. Okay, so there's something that is leading one to then speak vocal cords out of one's mouth, the determination, the will, the desire, the passion that comes out when it is spoken to the humble and they hear those words with their ears and it will lead them to rejoice. You see, this is much more than just some internal privatized immaterial spiritual thing. Psalm 62 verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. And then Proverbs 6, verses 30 and 31. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Now in this passage, his appetite is the way the ESV has translated the word nephesh. Don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite. If he satisfies his hunger... The man needs something to eat. 
he longs to be filled and to be satisfied. Why? Because as a person, he is in need of it. And so here are some of the words we've seen. Creature, person, life, strength, soul, appetite. It is a very holistic idea of the human person. Again, not wanting to make too strong of a distinction, the living breath of God is in fact the thing that animates all living creatures. We'll find out later in the book of Genesis that when the flood comes, that the Lord God will seek to everything that has the breath of life in it will come to an end. So this breath of life idea is something that animates all creatures, all of creation. And why is this important? Here's why I think it's important. Because when we come to the Gospels, there are very few ways of understanding Jesus's ministry if you do not understand this idea of the person, the nephesh, the soul, the strength, the living creatureliness of human beings. I think Jesus understands this better than anyone. And when you read in the pages of the Gospels, what do you see? You see people with fevers being healed. You see people with emotional trauma and isolation from one another being reunited back into community. You see people with demonic oppression that has oppressed them internally to the point that they end up doing destructive things to their bodies and Jesus sets them free. You see people who cannot walk with their legs and Jesus reaching out and physically healing their legs. You see others who are carried on mats to Jesus, lowered through the roof of the house in order to get to him. And Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. But then when there is grumbling under the breath of some of the religious leaders that only God has the right to forgive sins, what does Jesus do as a way to verify that he in fact has authority on earth to forgive sins? He looks at the man and says, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And Jesus, if for nothing else in that passage, connects for us. There is a vital, vital connection between what is internal and spiritual and your distance between you and God and the physical body which manifests those types of characteristics. Jesus deals with the internal. Jesus deals with the external. Jesus allows people to pour oil on his feet and wipe them with their tears and then wipe them with their hair. Jesus reaches out and touches lepers. He lets women who have flow of blood which makes her ritually unclean, he allows her to reach out and touch him and power flows through Jesus' body. There are, it saddens me the number of times people can read the Gospels and only want to relegate what Jesus is doing to the spiritual side of people. No, Jesus is actually incredibly interested in the whole person, body, mind, spirit, internal, the emotions, the heart, the passions, the body, the energy, the strength, the flesh, all of it. He's here to restore it all. And we know this because this is the way man was actually created in the beginning. 
and we may choose to use a different podcast to discuss the remainder of this, but I, will want, I do want to point out one final area, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is built entirely around the belief that Jesus, in physical form, was raised bodily from the dead as the perfect offering for sin and as God's declaration of victory over all things that the enemy sought to destroy the world with, Jesus conquered them all. And when he rose from the dead, he shattered everyone's expectations and everyone's belief that somehow the afterlife is going to be some disembodied thing. It's going to be some return to an immaterial state. And yet Jesus's resurrection from the dead started the afterlife. And it showed us all what life after death actually looks like. In fact, Jesus was more physical than we are. He is more spiritual than we are. He is more real than any of us. And yet our hope is that we will one day be like him and we will see him face to face and God will restore and redeem all of the parts of us as a whole as a unit, to declare freedom and victory from everything that oppresses human nature. That is what we look for. That's what we hope for. That is the Christian hope. And it's the Christian hope because when God stoops down in the dust and gets his hands dirty, personally and intimately forming the parts of man, he then breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life and the man becomes a living nephesh. From this point on, how man chooses to follow God, how man chooses to hear God, what it looks like to be a worshiper of God will involve the whole person. It always involves the whole person. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, please feel free to email me any questions or comments or thoughts that you have as you're wrestling through some of these topics. You can send me an email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment or a review down in the, the bottom of the show notes of whatever app you happen to be listening to these podcasts on. But I really appreciate any feedback you can give as we continue to explore the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. See you next time.